We've talked a lot about architecture these past couple of years, but one of the things we haven't talked about much at all is how expensive buildings can be. Anyone who has ever built a house or bought one someone else has built knows this to be true. Even the land a house sits on can be expensive. This is especially the case if the land happens to be located somewhere with a really nice view. I'm thinking of a place like Tuscany or the French Riviera or Hawaii. Of course, these aren't the most expensive places you could live. They're not even the most exclusive. No, the most expensive and exclusive place in the world you could live isn't technically on the world at all. It's orbiting 250 miles above it. At a cost of over $150 billion, the International Space Station is arguably the most expensive piece of architecture ever constructed. I have never lived there myself, but I was able to speak to someone who has. Reed Wiseman was a naval aviator and a test pilot before he became an astronaut at NASA. He spent about five and a half months on board the International Space Station in 2014. I talked to him over the phone, and he told me about how amazing it was when he first arrived at the space station. I felt like throwing up. I was exhausted. I didn't know if I would ever eat food again because I felt so full. And I hadn't eaten in probably 10 hours at that point. And then at the same time, you're overwhelmed because you spent four plus years training to come through that hatch and to be a productive member of the crew. And now you're floating and you don't know how to do anything. You don't know how to really move, you don't know how to work, you don't know how to sleep, you don't know how to eat. Um, so you feel very overwhelmed. Despite how disoriented he was, there was one thing Reed wanted to do more than anything else. You're just scrambling to get to a window and look back at the earth and just see it. Whether it's day or night, it doesn't matter. Once you're on board, you just gotta look at that view. It's just, it's so incredible. A little over 200 people have lived on board the International Space Station. That qualifies it as a pretty exclusive part of the built environment. That said, even it isn't the most exclusive place a person could live. No, the most exclusive place you could live is on the surface of the moon. That's what we're going to talk about on this, the 20th episode of The Works, a podcast about architecture, those who create it, and those who inhabit it. I'm Brantley Hightower. go to the moon, let's spend a little more time with Reed at the International Space Station. The orbiting laboratory consists of a series of modules that were built by different countries and assembled in orbit between 1998 and 2011. If you've ever seen photos of its interior, it looks kind of messy with computers, cables, and other equipment all over the place. I asked Reed if it feels at all cluttered when you're living there. Uh, it definitely feels that way the first second you come through the hatch. We don't have any mock-up on the ground that perfectly models all the wires, the experiments, the humans living in there. And so when you first go through the U.S. lab in particular, you're used to seeing it in the Earth-based trainer. And then when you see it in space, you are just like, oh my, I am never going to understand what's going on in here. There's just stuff everywhere. That feeling of being overwhelmed doesn't last long, though. But it takes about two weeks, and then it feels like home. Of course, this just happens to be a home flying at 17,500 miles per hour, 250 miles above the Earth. But here's the interesting thing. 
Even if you're one of the few people who have been able to travel into space, it seems the main thing you want to do once you're there is look back on the place you've left behind. You want to take in the view of the Earth. And on my really free time, I would look at the, the, our ground track over the Earth, and I would find a city or a town or something that interests me, and I would go down to the Russian segment. They have a little window that looks straight down, and it's optically pure. And I would take uh, 800-millimeter zoom lens, and I would try to take photos of that place through that one window. Of course, that window wasn't the only one on board. There was an even larger one called the cupola. But what the cupola is, it's seven windows. Six of them go all around the edge, so you can see a 360-degree view of the Earth. And then the center window looks straight down on our planet. And it's probably, I'm guessing, three feet in diameter. And you can just look all around at our planet. And it's addictive. I mean, it is so addictive. I wish I was in the cupola right now. Watching the sun as it set behind the Earth made for an especially breathtaking view. Sunsets on Earth can be impressive, of course, but in orbit, they are always spectacular. Well, first of all, they're really fast because you're going 17,500 miles an hour. You get, you get 16 of them a day, but they happen quick. The neat thing is when the sun angle gets low, the Earth gets really vivid because the Earth is still casting shadows. Like, like the Grand Canyon, when the sun angle is low, is just, you know, it's even more beautiful. But then as the sun goes into the horizon, that's when you start to see all these different color bands in the atmosphere. It's these reds, oranges, and then the dark blues, lighter blue, lighter blue, lighter blue, all the way up into space. And, uh, and it's just, it's amazing. It's absolutely gorgeous. The view from the International Space Station is something that has been seen by only a few hundred people. But the view from the surface of the moon is something only 12 people have seen. One of them was a man by the name of Charlie Duke. 60 seconds. Charlie Duke was one of the three crew members of Apollo 16. That was the fifth mission that landed on the moon, making Charlie the tenth man to walk on it. You probably know the name of Neil Armstrong, the first man on the moon, but few people bother to learn the name of the second man or anyone after him. Sorry, Buzz. Still, if you've listened to the recording of that first lunar landing, you've heard Charlie Duke's voice. We copy it down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twink. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. On July 20th, 1969, Charlie was at Mission Control in Houston. His job that day was to convey information from the ground to the two astronauts as they made their landing. Three years later, it would be his turn to go to the moon. Apollo 16 would be Charlie's first and only space flight. He spent years training for it and has spent decades remembering it. When I asked him what was the most memorable part of his experience when he first arrived in space, his answer was the same as Reed's. It was the view. Well, our simulators were very high fidelity as far as the replication of the switches and the systems. Uh, the view out the window was incredible. You don't get in a simulator. So uh, that certainly was uh, awe-inspiring, you know, to look out and uh, see the Earth whiz by down you 100 miles away. I can remember especially going over Houston our first time around and look down and uh, you could see the freeways and the runways at Ellington, NASA, and the Clear Lake and all of the little 
geographic feature. So it's pretty neat. You had to look fast because you're going pretty fast over there. <laughs> the way these missions would work is that after arriving in orbit around the Earth, the third stage of their rocket would reignite. This would send Charlie and the other two crew members, Ken Mattingly and John Young, on their journey to the moon. After we left Earth orbit, Mattingly separated the command service module from the third stage. And the lunar module on liftoff is behind you, underneath you. So you separate, and then you have to pitch around and come back in and dock up. And that was his job. And John was monitoring the maneuver with the computer. And I was on my side was electrical system, environmental control system. And that's about it. So I had a lot of free time. And, and so I was looking out my right window into that window floats this view of Earth, and it was breathtaking. You could see it wasn't quite a full Earth, but it was, you know, almost a full Earth out there. And, and it was a beautiful jewel of blue and white, and, um, and there was just hung in the blackness of space. So it was uh, really a moving sight. It was awesome. Of course, the Earth wasn't the only beautiful thing floating outside his window. There was also the pee. The crew would collect urine and other liquids produced on board, and from time to time, they would dump it into the vacuum of space. And so when the tanks got full, you vented that over, and that's the same crystalline structure. As that water hits the vacuum of space, it just flashes off into uh, the little crystals that then evaporate real quickly. It was spectacular. Just the sun glistening through these crystals would break up the light into different wavelengths so you could see some different uh, colors in them. It was uh, pretty, pretty neat. As they made their way towards the moon, their velocity decreased as the force of Earth's gravity pulled them back. Then, several days later, as they got closer to the moon, their velocity increased as they started to fall towards the moon and its gravity. At any rate, after three days and 225,000 miles, Charlie, Ken, and John were in orbit around the moon. And just like Reed talked about the view of the sunset behind the Earth, Charlie talked about the view of the sunset behind the moon. Earth orbit, you of course, you have atmosphere, and so when you're going into darkness, you can watch the sun, it sets, but then the glow of the light in the atmosphere, you can still see that, that glow. Similar to watching the sun go down here, when you have a good view, the sun sets, you can't see the orb anymore, but you can see the color in the clouds and stuff like that. Well, that's what it is on Earth orbit, too. It, it goes by a lot quicker, of course, because you're whizzing away from sunset. But on the moon, there is no atmosphere, so when the sun sets, it's not instant darkness because when the sun set, we were still in Earthshine. So the Earth shines uh, onto, the, uh, onto the moon, and it gives sort of a glow. It's very similar to what we see in a bright moon. Down here, you can still see. It's not pitch black. The moon that we had in relation to Earth was a half moon. So half the backside was in sunlight and half the front side. So as we whizzed over our landing spot, uh, you know, 30, 40 seconds later, it went, the sun just went down and there's no glow 
it's just down because there's nothing, no atmosphere to give it that glow. When it came time to actually land on the moon, Charlie and John floated into the lunar module that was designed specifically for the landing. From a purely aesthetic standpoint, it wasn't much to look at. Well, it was uh, horrible looking, but very efficient. I never did doubt its capability. It was designed for a landing on the moon. It wasn't designed for the beauty of it. It wasn't designed for have a re-entry shape. To save as much weight as possible, the lunar module was made as small and as light as possible. It didn't have beds for the two men to sleep in. Heck, it didn't even have seats. They actually stood at the controls as they made their descent and landing on the moon. But it's worth remembering that the gravity of the moon is only one-sixth that of the Earth. Despite being cramped, the reduced gravity made the lunar module a remarkably comfortable home for the three days they lived on the moon. A lesser gravity, one-sixth gravity of the moon made it working around in a spacecraft a lot easier uh, than down here on Earth. And when we got ready for rest period, uh, we had two hammocks, and they were, mine was right off the floor, and it was from right to left. Uh, and uh, it was about six inches off the floor. John's was about two feet above me, and his went from four to half. And at one-six gravity, it's really comfortable sleeping. Except for the first night, uh, the first night we just landed, and they told us to go to bed four or five hours after we landed, so you can imagine how excited we were. I had to take a sleeping pill to get to sleep that night, but the rest of the time it was very comfortable. The lunar module has three small windows. One pointed straight up and was used for docking. The other two looked forward and were the ones Charlie and John used during landing. They were triangular in shape and less than two feet wide. Charlie's window worked fine for landing, but it didn't offer a particularly wide-angled view. But once he had put on his spacesuit, opened the hatch, and climbed down the ladder, he was able to turn and see the full panorama of the moon. That view, as you might imagine, was amazing. When I climbed down the ladder and uh, stepped onto the foot pad and then jumped off onto the lunar surface, it, uh, the uh, feeling was finally here, you know, and uh, it was an awesome feeling of a wonder. You can't feel through your moon boot and through your suit boot, you don't feel like you're experiencing something like walking barefoot on a sand dune at the beach. You can't feel that feeling, but you can have this emotional event. Despite the fact he was standing on an alien world, some things reminded him of views he had seen before. You know, you're standing on the moon, and when you let that thought sink in, and this beautiful uh, desert environment, uh, it's one of the most beautiful spots I'd ever seen, I thought. And uh, I love the desert, and so the moon was just a big desert, gray, instead of brown like down here on Earth. Other things were like nothing he had seen before. I still remember looking out at the horizon and seeing that sharp contrast between the blackness of space. Probably one of the most amazing things about the lunar sky is the black. And uh, yet it has a vividness to it. You felt like you could reach out and touch it. Even though the moon rotates around the Earth, the same side always faces it. That's why we never see the backside of the moon. What that also means is that from the lunar surface, the Earth is always floating in the same place. 
Charlie and John had landed near the equator of the moon, and so the Earth was always directly overhead. Because of the way their spacesuits were designed, that made it hard to actually see their home planet. In an Apollo suit, it's like being in a fishbowl. You can move your head inside the helmet, but the helmet doesn't move. So you look up and you're looking at the opaque top of your helmet. Since the Earth was right overhead, we didn't see it often. The only time I really saw it was when I fell over backwards uh, towards the end of our stay and flat on my back on the moon and there's the Earth right out in front of me. <laughs> Charlie and John made a total of three moonwalks during their three days on the moon. Before he climbed back into the lunar module for the last time, he left a photo behind on its surface. It was a photo that showed a very earthly view, a view of his family. Well, I wanted to include our family in this adventure. Charles had just turned seven, and Tom was going to be five a couple of weeks after we lifted off. So to get them feeling like they're part of this adventure, I asked them if they'd like to go to the moon with Dad, and they said, yes. Yeah. So I said, well, we'll take a picture, and I'll take you all to the moon in this photograph. And uh, I just thought that would be a good way to honor my family and to include them in this adventure. On the back of the photo, I think we'd written, this is the family of astronaut Charlie Duke from planet Earth who landed on the moon in April 1972, and so we all signed it. And uh, still there after 44 years, uh, all shriveled up and faded now, of course. Soon enough, it was time to leave. They closed the hatch and then launched the top part of the lunar module back up to meet the third member of their crew. After they docked and transferred all their samples, it was time to jettison the lunar module. You see, their home on the moon wouldn't be traveling back to Earth with them. It weighed too much. Space travel is all about mass. The more of it a spacecraft has, the more fuel it needs to get to the moon or to get back home. And so, as was the case with other missions, the lunar module would be jettisoned and intentionally crashed back into the moon as part of a seismic experiment. We think of the Apollo moon landings as this amazing technological achievement. And it was, of course. But the technology it made use of is now half a century old. One of the reasons Ken Mattingly, the third crew member, had to stay in orbit around the moon while his two crewmates landed on it was that computer automation wasn't all that sophisticated back then. They still needed a human to stay on board and maintain their ride back to Earth. When he was orbiting the moon by himself, Mattingly took a series of high-resolution photographs of the lunar surface using a special camera mounted outside the spacecraft. This being 1972, these photographs used film. And so on the way back, somewhere in between the Earth and the moon, Ken had to go on a spacewalk to physically retrieve the film. While Ken was outside doing this, Charlie stood in the open hatch to assist his crewmate. To be perfectly honest, he didn't have that much to do, so he had a chance to take in the view. Uh, I looked over the side of the hatch, and there, there's the Earth. And it's about 180,000 miles away, and it's just a little thin crescent, you know, blue and white. And I said, wow, I wonder where the moon is. And I spun around this way, and the moon was up in my left, 180 degrees away, and it was enormous, almost full moon. And it was just huge, and it was 50,000 miles away. And, and you could see the major tranquility, you could see the Descartes Highlands, uh, 
and the, and all of the front side of the moon. It was a spectacular sight. And everywhere else you looked was black. The crew of Apollo 16 returned safely to the Earth on April 27, 1972. At age 36, Charlie Duke was the youngest man to have walked on the moon. Once he got back home, he still had lots of life left to live. One of the things Charlie became known for was his strong Christian faith. Many people assumed this faith was with him during his trip to the moon, but it actually developed many years later in response to the same sort of challenges all of us face here on Earth. That said, his unique experience, the unique view he had been given of the Earth and moon and everything in between, gave certain passages of the Bible special meaning for him. In Isaiah, it says that God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Now, I didn't see God, uh, but I saw the circle of the earth. And so the scripture speaks the truth about the, about the character of the earth and the immensity of the creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the works of his hands. And on the dark side of the earth and on the dark side of the moon, you can see the, the wonder of the creation with all the planets and the galaxies and the stars. Both Reed Wiseman and Charlie Duke experienced things that most of us never will. They both left behind the world they knew to live for a time in a very foreign place. They returned home with a very different understanding of and appreciation for that home. Travel serves many purposes. It exposes us to new and different ways of living, and in doing so, it helps us understand the place we left behind. This is true if we spend 11 days traveling to the moon and back, or if we go to the beach for a long weekend. Architecture, too, serves many purposes. It provides shelter to protect us from what's outside. It provides us with a place to call home. But perhaps most importantly, architecture creates a frame from which we can see what is outside of us. The best architecture provides us with a view. And that view can change everything. Thanks today to Blake Dumasnil and Nicole Cloutier of NASA, who helped set up my interview with Reed Wiseman. Thanks also to Charlie Duke for putting up with all my pleading emails and letters that finally culminated in the conversation we listened to today. Charlie and his wife Dottie wrote a book about their experiences. It's called Moonwalker, and I'll put a link to it and Charlie's website in the show notes. The music today was by Chris Zabriskie. The Works, as always, is a production of HighWorks, and you can find more information about it and everything we've talked about today at high.works. This is the last episode of what may be the last season of the podcast. I've enjoyed sharing these stories with you, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to them. There are certainly other stories I want to tell, but there are also other ways of telling them. And so until next time, whenever and wherever that might be, I'm Brantley Hightower. <laughs>